In less than a year, Missouri residents will go to the polls to decide if U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill receives another six-year term. Whether the Democratic legislator makes it back to D.C. could depend on a robust turnout in St. Louis and Kansas City. But recent protests over Jason Stockley's acquittal of first-degree murder are complicating things for McCaskill. Some African-American elected officials, including State Representative Bruce Franks of St. Louis, contend McCaskill is too focused on pleasing rural Missouri and hasn't been present enough during the weeks of demonstrations. But what has happened over time is the party has got reliant on black folks just voting Democrat. So they don't show up in the black community, i.e. Chris Costa, and then wonder why we're not out there to support, why we can't just vote Democrat, because something isn't always better than nothing when you've only had nothing. Other Democrats, like State Representative Joe Adams of University City, see the protests as an opportunity for his party to get younger voters to the polls next year. Adams joins us for another edition of the Politically Speaking podcast to talk about the Stockley protests and other issues. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens. Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a co-host who thought the recent 30 for 30 on Ric Flair was underwhelming. I am that host, (laughs) Jason Rosenbaum, the editor uh, at St. Louis Public Radio and a huge pro wrestling fan. Joining me in studio today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And as is custom, we want to talk about Joe's feature about the political impact of the Jason Stockley protest. Uh, Joe recently worked very, very hard on this story to see uh, if these protests are going to affect people like Claire McCaskill and Nicole Galloway. Yeah. Now, obviously, my feature was from a Democratic perspective because... Um, The Democrats need a very, very, very strong turnout in urban areas and from African-Americans in Missouri in order to have any chance of winning statewide. I mean, the Republicans have a different dynamic, which I've written about before. But the bottom line is the the, uh, protests have added an element of tension, but some also believe it's added an element of enthusiasm. So anyway, so my story sort of looked at who some of the benefactors and some of the people who might suffer from the Stockley protests. State Representative Bruce Franks, a St. Louis Democrat, has become an unofficial leader for the protesters. And he's warning fellow Democrats on next year's ballot, including U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill, that their political futures are at risk if they ignore the issues being raised. Time tick because we've had too many people in these offices for too long that hasn't come back to the community. And that's just not Claire, that's just not Steve Stinger, that's just not Lacey Clay, it's a bunch of them. Franks was speaking at a packed Democratic gathering in Richmond Heights. You could hear a pin drop as Franks talked for more than an hour about the racial divide within their party. 
Missouri Democrats running for statewide office cannot win without a strong voter turnout in the state's urban areas. They also need robust support from African Americans who can make up about a quarter of the state's Democratic vote. Franks believes McCaskill has not paid enough attention to the Stockley protests. McCaskill says she is keenly aware of what's happening in St. Louis. There's an awful lot of protesters that have legitimate reasons to be upset and protesting. And there's an awful lot of police officers that want to do the right thing. McCaskill adds that she plans to spend more time in urban areas next year. But she emphasizes that she cannot ignore rural Missouri where the protests are unpopular. She'll need to get close to 40 percent of the rural vote if she wants to win. State Senator Jamila Nasheed, a St. Louis Democrat, says she understands McCaskill's dilemma. Nasheed warns that Democrats risk putting Republican Josh Hawley in the Senate if they fail to show up next year. We have to unite uh, behind uh, Claire because we cannot turn back the clock on, uh, on this state with, with a Hawley. We just can't do that. St. Louis County Executive Steve Stinger is a Democrat whose reelection also could be in peril. He barely won in 2014 because some African-American officials and voters were angry that Stinger, who is white, had ousted longtime county executive Charlie Dooley, who is black, in the Democratic primary. A few days after that contest, a Ferguson police officer killed 18-year-old Michael Brown, setting off months of unrest. Stinger says he is sensitive to the concerns of the county's large African-American population. He points to his new budget, which sets aside $1 million for police training. With respect to my election, I think that we have a real record to stand on with respect to many of the issues that are being raised uh, by individuals involved in the protests. Missouri Democratic Party Chairman Stephen Weber is aware of the party tensions ignited by the latest protests. At last weekend's Truman Dinner, held in downtown St. Louis, Weber praised the protesters and addressed the Democratic Party's challenge head-on. We have a sense of urgency because this region and state and country are grappling with a systematic racial injustice that can no longer be tolerated. Democratic State Representative Joe Adams of University City believes the protests could actually help his party. I think it will energize people to be involved in politics, to come out and participate and hold their elected officials accountable. Many Missouri Democratic leaders believe the next months could be essential in forging political unity, which will be crucial in next year's elections. So, Joe, uh, U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill has a very narrow path to victory. She has to get robust turnout in St. Louis or Kansas City. She has to either win or at least fight hard in some of the suburbs like St. Louis County, like Jefferson County, Lincoln County. Jackson County. And Jackson County. And she also needs to hold down the the eventual Republican nominee's margins in, in rural Missouri. Given what's happened over the last few weeks, do you think that the first part of that narrow path, which is the robust turnout, is in jeopardy? Well, I think it's really too early to tell. I think it definitely is a is a, a, a key subject of discussion. Um, I think that there have been, well, as, as my feature mentioned, 
there are some um, African-American legislators, including Bruce Franks, who think there needs to be more attention. But there are others who say, well, she's got plenty of time and that that focus on urban turnout really needs to be in later in 2018, let's say in the summer. So I think we'll kind of see how things play out. In fact, uh, Mayor Lida Krusen, who I interviewed and who ended up being in my uh, the digital version of this story, uh, also said that this may just be too early to tell. The point is how things play out over the next few months. As you and I and everybody around the nation has seen, things in this country and this region can change on a dime. And so we could be talking about something totally different in six months. That was going to be my next question. My attitude about U.S. Senate races has been that what's happening locally can make a difference, but the overriding factor in who wins is the national environment. Um, We saw last year when uh, Donald Trump won 19% margin in the state that it was enough for Roy Blunt to win, even with a strong campaign with Jason Kander. We also saw in 2006 when Claire McCaskill won initially that she was propelled into office by a terrible environment for Republicans. So isn't that going to be the bigger factor than whether people are upset with McCaskill's handling of the of the, the Stockley protests? Well, I think it's going to be a, compl- uh, a complicated series of things. The national environment's definitely one. But I think it also depends what else is on the ballot. Uh, you and I have talked about this. Uh, she... It depends how strong St. Louis County, which is the largest voting block in the state and is leaning and is considered pretty much Democratic now, depends how big her margin is and depends how many of the St. Louis County voters actually come out. So that's where the Stockley protests or other factors, whether it be right to work, minimum wage, whatever, all that's going to play into it. I mean, especially if it ends up being close. So now we're going to talk to somebody who was featured in Joe's story, State Representative Joe Adams. He's a Democrat from University City who represents University City and several other municipalities in central and north St. Louis County. And as we do with all of our guests, we asked him a little bit about his background. Well, I guess what got me on the road to Jefferson City was being involved in local politics. I was on the city council in University City for 21 years. Uh, I got there, I guess it's not necessarily a fluke, but uh, I became a leader of my neighborhood, and my neighborhood wanted a stop sign uh, in the neighborhood because people were cutting through, and so, and the vacancy on the council happened. I said, I, hey, I can do that. You know, that's a real similar story to Harriet Woods, who that ended up cr- being lieutenant governor. He's from U City. That's how she got involved. Was over a stop sign, <laughs> and I and I re- actually replaced Harriet Woods <laughs> on the city council. <laughs> talk about talk about irony. Now, now what do you, I mean? Mo- most legislators have another job on the side. I mean, what did you do before you went on the city council? Well, I I became a, an educator. I was a professor of history at Merrimack Community okay. College, and okay. I did that for over thirty two years. And do you have a PhD? No, I don't. I've got a master's degree, and I got 30 hours past that. I was working on my Ph.D. at Washington University, but a couple of interesting things happened. Like, I got promoted to full professor at Merrimack, and I knew I wasn't going to write the book and go to Harvard or Yale or something. So, And I enjoyed teaching. Yeah. And, so. and you were doing politics? You were doing this on the side? So you were doing... 
the professor stuff while you were on the city council? That is correct. And while while you were mayor? That is correct. Well, part of the time. I okay. I retired uh, from the uh, from university. Oh, wow. I retired from Merrimack in 2003, and I didn't retire from the mayorship until 2010. Yeah. Okay. Now, you ran for the state senate in 2010. That is correct. And you lost. Right. And then four years later, Rory Ellinger, who I mentioned before, announced that he wasn't going to run for re-election. Unfortunately, he had a chronic form of cancer, and he actually passed away pretty quickly after he announced he wasn't going to run for re-election. Yeah, and, I, I, and Ellinger was uh, a re- very significant figure, I think, in uh, in in mid-county politics. I yes. Mean, he was somebody who I uh, respected a lot. So he announces he's not going to run again. And then you announced that you're going to run for the state house. Was that something you were expecting to do? Or did you expect after 2010 you were totally done with trying for state politics? Well, after I lost that Senate race, I basically said the good people decided that I should enjoy retirement. So that's what so I was So the doing. Senate race was what, 2008? Yeah, t- t- 2010. Tw- 2010, yeah. Right. That's the one again, yeah. And uh, But Rory, I knew. I Rory was a friend of mine. In fact, he was my attorney on a number of issues. We worked together when he was president of the school board and I was mayor of U City. We created a president of the school board mayor's committee. Rory had talked to me earlier, prior to his health problem, about running for his seat because he was thinking about running for the state senate and he wanted me to run for the house and I was thinking about it. I was also thinking about other races and uh, in that year too and then Rory's illness happened, and I decided, yeah, I think I'm a good fit to replace Rory Ellinger, my friend. Now, that was a contested Democratic primary, as was the, the 2010 Senate race. You yeah. did win. Did you? I ask this a lot of people that, that run for a state office and lose and then come back at a certain point and win. Did you learn stuff from 2010 that helped you win in 2014? Because a lot of times candidates that lose an election— come back, you know, two, four, six years later, and they've learned from their mistakes and they do better the second time around. Yes, I did learn a lot. And I I learned who to trust and how to build a good campaign and where to target that campaign. And we'll talk more about your, your future Senate campaign at the end of the show. But you've been in the legislature now for about three years. That is correct. What has been kind of your impression so far? Well, it's totally dominated by the Republicans, and the only way a Democrat can get something to done is to try to partner with Republicans and try to craft your legislation along some of their thinking of individuals anyway and try to find somebody with some juice to get something done. So, um, but, but even so, because of your background in local politics— has that helped you as far as what issues to push? Are there particular issues that are very important to you? I think I know the answer, but I want you to say it. Well, there are issues that are very important to me. Uh, being in local government, I had an idea of what was going on in the legislature. I had probably a, a sizable institutional knowledge of past legislation because of going down there to lobby for various things. And I definitely want to try to protect cities, particularly cities in St. Louis County and North St. Louis County, because the legislature seems to be attacking them. 
dominated because it's been dominated by rural interests for decades. I mean, just right. to make it clear, whether one agrees or disagrees with their position on the issues, the General Assembly, I mean, there's definitely a rural-urban divide, and the rural interests have been in control for ages. I mean, it was only some uh, legal changes that came about about 50 years ago that ended what had been a state law that required that every county have its own state rep. As of 1130 on Monday, which is when we're recording this show, there is currently some uncertainty about whether the superintendent of DESE, which is the entity that controls the public schools in Department Missouri. Department of Elementary, Elementary and Secondary Education. The superintendent, Margie Van Dieven, um, will keep her job. And this is the situation right now. Um, the governor appoints the uh, appointees to the State Board of Education. Um, it's a nine-person board, and the governor, Eric Reitens, who is a Republican, has appointed now five of the nine members. And I think that there's some concern amongst education groups that those five appointees are going to hire somebody else who is probably more supportive of charter schools or vouchers. school choice or no. vouchers or whatnot. I'm interested to hear your opinion about this, as I know you weren't a K-12 through educator for most of your career, but I know that you probably have been following this situation. Um, what, what's kind of your take? Well, I believe it is an attack. I think the governor is trying to control a lot of various entities, uh, boards that are supposed to be nonpartisan and independent. And this is an attempt to model this government after his philosophy. Is, the, is it really unusual, though, for a governor to appoint people to a board and then have them appoint like an executive director that is, is loyal to them? The two that come to mind, the Moser's executive director is John Watson, who is Nixon's chief of staff for many years and the former state auditor. And then the uh, Conservation Commission's executive director is the former DNR director. So I understand why people are upset about this, but... I don't really know if it's unprecedented for the governor to be doing what he's purported to be doing. Like, it happens somewhat frequently, from what I recall. Well, yes, but it's normal and doing the normal process of replacing board members, not in the sense of putting pressure or leaning and trying to force board members out and appoint board members who believe in a certain philosophy. And the governor bringing in his handpick successor for this position before the position even existed, I think shows an example of him trying to manipulate this the system. So, I mean, is there any talk among legislators, I mean, of either side who've been involved in education about this? Not yet. I mean, it's, there are some who are talking about it. Uh, being I'm on a higher education, I'm not totally in the loop of the K-12 through group. But I will be talking to them shortly to find out what their thinking is, particularly on my side of the aisle. Well, I mean, related to this in some ways is that higher ed, I mean, this has been going on for years, but it's really gotten big the last couple of years because of some of the state's budget problems. All of a sudden, higher ed has gotten hammered with a lot of cuts, which means tuition has gone up. Right. And from your perspective, especially now there's talk that if the federal um, tax proposals go through that the state of Missouri, I mean, some estimates they could lose as much as a billion dollars. I mean, just kind of your thoughts about what would happen to education in general, but especially higher ed, since they're the ones that have been getting a lot of the cuts the last few years. 
Funny, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I was speaking to a group of Horseshoe students uh, last week, and we were talking about higher education and the funding system and everything else. Even though it's Washington University, they're not coming out of the state budget. But I think it does have an effect on even on Washington University. I can remember when I went to a state university, I graduated both undergraduate and a graduate degree without student debt, and I was lucky. But it can't. It could be done back in my time period. Today, it's impossible. And I believe if we really truly want this state to be business friendly, as some people are saying, instead of cutting taxes, you've got to make sure the educational system is top notch. Because I really believe business leaders are not looking at seeing a tax haven. But if you have a well-educated workforce, and as I was telling the Warshoe students, what that degree shows is that you are teachable, that you can be hired by this company, and they can show you how to function in their business environment, and you will succeed. You will succeed. I mean, because you kind of see some of this um, the last six, seven years, like when Pfizer, and I want to be upfront at a close relative who had a key job with Pfizer, in 2010 when they decided to move uh, under the, the new um, CEO, they moved to Massachusetts. You mm -hmm. know, even though uh, on paper they actually, there was lower taxes here, they had this facility, all this and that, but they moved to Massachusetts, which is much higher taxes. Well, it's because there was other things that they saw that were advantageous to their industry from being um, in the Boston area. So my and you've had we've had some companies and the Rams they went to California, which is extremely high tax, but uh, they saw other potential reasons. My point being is that an argument could be made that it's not just taxes that businesses or entities look at; it's other factors. That is correct. I believe that it is other factors, and. Education is a very important factor, and we're decimating our educational institutions. I mean, the cuts that Mizzou had and the cuts uh, for, forced on Mizzou because some people weren't happy what was going on at Mizzou the last couple of years. Uh, there, it's been a systematic attack, and it's got to stop. Yeah, I do want to ask about the funding aspect because there was less money that came into the state than predicted this year. And... Higher education is primarily funded with general revenue. So when you have a budget shortfall, you don't really have a lot of options about what you can cut um, besides general revenue items like higher ed. It's a two-part question I'm about to ask. Number one, should this situation this year be a wake-up call to higher education administrators that their funding should not primarily be from general revenue, but they should maybe think of a direct funding source that maybe comes from cigarette taxes or something that is not at the mercy of the General Assembly to, to fund their institutions? And two, what would you have done differently to save higher ed institutions from getting cut? So the first question first. Wow. Uh yeah, I think I, I think that might be necessary, and I and I do hate those earmarked tax revenue sources because all of a sudden you can have too much money being collected and people wastefully spending it. Or or the other part of the stream gets cut back. I mean, yeah. that's what happened with the lottery. I mean, right. But but continue. Yeah, and, and so that that is a possibility. 
I, I really, but it might be the solution or a short-term solution. The long-term solution is getting rid of that Northquist pledge that a large number of Republicans have signed saying no new taxes. They've cut revenue sources, and now they've cut them to the bone, trying to emulate other places like Kansas, which has now reversed itself in some regards because of what it was doing to their educational system. We've got to adequately fund our educational system, and if that requires more revenue, let's do it. Now, moving on to next year a little bit, um, one of the things that the governor pledged to make a priority at the beginning of the year was ethics. Um, He wanted to curtail lobbyist uh, entertainment, food, and travel. He wanted to expand the revolving door uh, ban between legislators and lobbyists. But that that agenda really didn't go very far, at least in the Senate. And a lot of the focus was on campaign finances, especially the fact that the governor's allies started this 501c4 called a new Missouri that was attacking Republican legislators. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that was kind of the backdrop of this year. Now, 2018 is an election year. Oftentimes, things are harder to pass in an election year. I'm just curious, before I get into the specificity of campaign finance, which is a rabbit hole that is going to be fun to get into. <laughs> yeah, both, yeah, both of us are campaign finance what, what, what's your What's your prognosis on the, on the ethics issue? Well, it was intriguing. I had one of the ethics bills. The Democrats in the House, we produced a series of ethics bills, and we, we filed them all at one time. And... The House, in a sense, felt it needed at least to acknowledge that those bills were filed. So we all had a hearing on our bills, one after another, and we they formed them into an omnibus bill to deal with it. Mine was dealing with revolving door, and that's where it died. After the, after the hearing and folding in, it went nowhere. Ethics is something that people, uh, particularly the majority party, might like to talk about, but it's not going to do a lot about it. Now, I think, is this, do you, do you think that's one of the reasons, and I'm not advocating any of this, but, okay, you had Amendment 2 that passed, which which put some campaign donation limits on some, but not others. It's been subject of various court cases. Uh, everybody agrees it's got flaws in it, and it, it was created by, actually, a conservative who was upset over some things that he mm-hmm. felt weren't getting through that he wanted. Now you've got this this other proposal that may make the ballot called Clean Missouri, which has some campaign finance stuff in it. It's got some alleged ethics stuff in it. Again, you've got people on both sides who are saying, well, you know, this is flawed, that's flawed. I mean, my point being is because the General Assembly isn't maybe dealing with it and having hearings and really trying to craft a, a, a compre- some comprehensive legislation that might not have these potholes, you end up with these ballot initiatives, proposed constitutional amendments, and then if they get passed, then they do, you know, have these, and then it's really hard to fix them. I'm just kind of interested in your take over what may or may not happen. Well, I think you're right. I think the only way to change Amendment 2 and other ethics things is through the initiative petition, because I do not see the legislature having the will or the gumption to do it. In a lot of ways, uh, maybe the old system was better in the sense that it, you tended not to have the dark money that we've got now because all the money was uh, visible, it, even though it was outrageous amounts. 
Uh, and Democrats on our side, we always kept trying to wanted to put caps in there, and there were no caps under the old system. Now there are caps under the new system, okay, but now there are these end rounds with the 501c3s, 4s, and whatever else they are, and all these various PACs. And we even seen, saw legislators try to create PACs, and some of them made mistakes in creating their PACs because they thought they could control them, and you can't, and so that's a problem. And how do you control a PAC that's named for you, that you raise money for, and... But it's supposed to be independent. It's but, independent. But you can go to a fundraiser. You can go to that PAC's fundraiser and say, give that PAC a million dollars. Right. And as long as that PAC doesn't explicitly say, I'm doing it for that candidate, it's, it's legal. Right. Yeah, I mean, just to explain our listeners real quick, I promise. Okay, PACs are political action committees. There are these independent ones that, like Jason was talking about, and that I've written about, you know, that are independent, but they they have ties to candidates. Then there's these um, things that are called 527s, 501c4s, 501c3s. Now, those are referring to provisions in the federal uh, tax code, but the bottom line is those groups, while not technically PACs, they operate like them, but they don't have to report anything. Yeah, right. Anything. And, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that gets to our next clip. Now, most of the attention about 501c4s and to some extent 501c3s has been on the Republican side because of the governor's a new Missouri. But I just wrote an article for St. Louis Public Radio about how $500,000 of nonprofit money has gone to a ballot initiative to raise the minimum wage. I, I spoke with Lou Prince, somebody who you know well. He used to own Vintage Vinyl on the Loop and is now retired and is now a treasurer for Raise Up Missouri, about if he had any misgivings about taking essentially enough money to get the signatures on the ballot from sources that we really don't know where they're coming from. Right. So this was his response. It would be like NPR asking its donors where their money comes from. Do you know what I'm saying? In other words, even if you talk about the, the, the cleanest group, I, I, the Carnegie Foundation, all right? Well, ultimately, their money comes from Robert Barron, Andrew Carnegie, union breaker and, and murderer. <laughs> ultimately, what I'm saying is we can vet the, the direct contributor. Uh, but I think, it's, I think it's really not fair. Um, to go to to ask us to vet beyond that, but more than that, if you take a look at where the opposition's money is coming from, it's much darker. Now, I want to ask you, as someone who probably supports raising the minimum wage and probably will vote for this ballot initiative, do you have some misgivings about this ballot initiative taking a lot of money with unknown funding sources when your party has been criticizing the governor for doing the same thing? You have asked a very good question. Uh, I believe that he's Lou Plurence and is playing by the rules that do exist. I don't like the rules that do exist, but he's playing by them. And so in that sense, I support him in trying to get this initiative on because there's no other way of doing it. And I, and I want to make another broader point. Sure. Now, Clean Missouri, which you mentioned, which it would make some fairly minor changes to the campaign finance system, it would not require a 501c4 to reveal their donors if they donated to a PAC or a ballot initiative. Mm -hmm. So what's happening here and what happened in that Senate race in Kansas City with Hillary Shields and Mike Searpoy, 
that situation would not change if clean Missouri passes. I'm not trying to say clean Missouri is good or bad. I'm not making a judgment. But after the Amendment 2 situation where people are purportedly surprised that PACs are allowed to operate with this much latitude, I think it's our duty as journalists to let the public know what is is and what is not part of this initiative. Right. And, and to be fair to Clean Missouri, I'm not advocating it either, is that um, I did a story about this uh, a few weeks ago. The um, leaders of that drive say that their lawyers told them that it would just be, I mean, that it would just throw them into court, A, and that B, they had to not have too many subjects, you know, so they ended up not doing that. But go on. And, and also, I think uh, they put together their petition prior to Amendment 2 being totally vetted or semi-vetted, and we all of a sudden see all the problems that Amendment 2 has. And it's got a tremendous amount of problems. Uh, Everybody's scratching their head trying to figure out, is this legal? Is that legal? Uh, What happens if I do this? I I know my treasurer has asked the MEC, the Missouri Ethics Commission, questions about certain things and got an answer. Then a couple of days later, asked them again, almost the same question, got a totally different answer. So I have no idea what the rules are. Now, this is my last question on Amendment 2. And (laughs) And people who have listened to this show know that I've asked sharp questions about this for Mm -hmm. for months, if not years. But should there have been a bit more scrutiny of this amendment before a lot of Democrats supported it? Because the vast majority of elected officials that I talked to about Amendment 2 before it passed were supportive of it because they were like, we know it's not perfect, but we support campaign donation limits. And now I'm hearing a lot of people say this never should have been passed in the first place. What's your take on that? Well, I'll tell you, early on, I did support it. Uh, Midway through, after I started looking at it and trying to read through it and figure out exactly its effect, I I came out in opposition to Amendment 2. And that was tough to say. It sounded sounded like, I'm against ethic reform. I'm against this and that. But I wasn't. I, I saw too many loopholes, and I didn't even see all of them. Well, I mean, to be uh, fair, uh, the the whole, I mean, we had almost 70% of Missouri voters back it, and the reason they back it, I think, is because they wanted something, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I mean, there's universal agreement that Amendment 2 is flawed, but it's because the General Assembly didn't act. Okay. Going back to when Jason was a kid, back back in the early 90s, when the original campaign finance limits Mm-hmm. were put in place um, in 95, after 94, what happened was there was, uh, and this is what's interesting, Roy Blunt was actually part of a effort to impose fairly strict campaign donation limits. The, the new governor, Mel Carnahan, got the General Assembly then to put in place limits that weren't quite as restrictive but the point was that then the effort to put in campaign donation limits, they were like, okay, okay, that's fine. Then what happened was a more con- a more progressive group got voters to pass even more stricter limits in the 94 election. And then that led to years, years of um, court fights while, you know, about which limits were in place. My mm-hmm. point being is when the General Assembly doesn't act and I— then that's what you end up with, all these warring initiative petitions. You get right. end up with all this stuff that goes on the ballot that may or may not have holes in them. And it all leads to the fact that, A, uh, we are pretty liberal in our state when it comes to initiative petitions. B, 
that the General Assembly, for frankly, under either party, but for different reasons, um, is sometimes difficult to react to it. They're hoping that if they just ignore it, it'll go away. It's not going to go away. I mean, regardless of which side you're on, it's not going to go away. That is correct. It isn't going to go away. I, the General Assembly should have dealt with it because then we could have totally vetted it and and we could also then come back and make changes to it when we see that it isn't really working the way we perceived it to work. Uh, the only way now to change it is hopefully the courts throw some of it or more of it out. Well, and, they've thrown some out, but then yeah. they've allowed others. So right. I, I, there's only really one or two court, small court cases uh, pending on Amendment 2, and they have nothing to do with the limits. It right. has, has to do with other stuff. Yeah. Now, I, I don't mind the limits if everybody's got the same limits. But, I but think. they don't. But they don't. I mean, if somebody could run for University City Mayor and could take a million-dollar donation. Right. Now, <laughs> shifting gears to next year's election, you were actually interviewed by Joe at the Truman Dinner about kind of the political fallout of the Stockley protest. And you actually had a very interesting perspective that we heard at the beginning of the show that you don't think that the protests are necessarily damaging for Democrats, but they could be an opportunity to get younger people to the polls next year, which could help people like Claire McCaskill and Nicole Galloway. I'm I'm interested of you fleshing out that perspective because I think that the mayor, uh, Lida Krusen, made a similar point, but it's it's an interesting perspective that I think uh, deserves a little bit more talking to, so to speak. Well, I think that uh, is energizing the base. It's trying to let people know that, hey, you can affect a change by showing up. And I, and I think that's one of the things that the protest is doing, is showing that, hey, we can affect changes. And I think also the election of President Trump is energizing the base, too. And I think all of those things are leading to young people being involved and wanting to be involved, and they will be voting. Well, all you got to do is keep them engaged. Now, might their enthusiasm be tamped down a little bit? I mean, just just like a little over a week ago, uh, many of the protesters opposed uh, Prop P, which, which was in the city and which was to get more money for police. Without mm-hmm. getting into the details of the thing, the bottom line was they campaigned hard against it. It still passed, and it actually passed easily. Does that, if you're a protester, does that sort of dampen your enthusiasm to get involved when you saw yourself getting involved and you weren't able to fix it or change it? Well, I, I, I think there was a number of things going on with that Prop P. Being I'm not in the city, I wasn't following totally that closely. <laughs> but it was intriguing to watch their opposition. And I understand their opposition because they don't see the change that they were wanting or the, the advent of a, or the proposal of a change in how the police department is operating and who's going to be controlling it and everything else. But Prop P also affects those people in, in fact, North St. Louis uh, City overwhelmingly voted for it, mainly because they have a problem, and the crime problem, and they see it. They feel it. It affects them daily, hourly. 
And they want some handle on that control of that issue, too. So in a sense, you had those two opposing viewpoints hitting each other, and the one of safety overrode the other one. I do want to shift gears, though, to your political future. You have announced that you are running for the 14th senatorial district seat. This is to succeed Maria Chappelle-Nadal, who will be term limited. That is correct. And you, you, um, as you said before, you ran in 2010, came in fourth out of four. Mm-hmm. How are you approaching this race? Because this is probably going to be another situation. You're not going to be the only Democratic candidate, but winning this primary is tantamount to election. I'm, I'm interested to hear why you're running and what you're bringing this time along. Well, one of the things that we're doing this time, that I'm doing this time, is really trying to build a huge coalition. I I am going out trying to reach people throughout that 14th Senate District, talking to them, listening to them, hearing what their issues are and their concerns. Because the 14th Senate District is is different. It is not homogeneous. It is not just one group. It's a lot of different groups with issues. Uh, You've got the Ferguson people. You've got University City. You've got northern part of Clayton, for example. You've got Bridgeton in there. You've got uh, Berkeley. Uh, You've got a lot of different entities, and they've all got their concerns about what they see. And that senator's got to listen to them. It, I would argue it's the most challenge, one of the most challenging legislative districts in the entire state. And I, I think so. And I know that there are some cities like in there are some districts in St. Louis or Kansas City, which I think are more impoverished, are less diverse. But the 14th senatorial district has had been the flashpoint for a lot of major crises in education, the environment. Obviously, Ferguson is within that Senate district. It's a really challenging district. And I want to, as a, as a follow-up to that observation, what do you think you have that will be able to meet that challenge hang, uh, head on? Well, one of the things is being uh, mayor of a city, a uh, university city, which is a diverse city. And that was not my doing, making it diverse. It was people who preceded me who consciously tried to do everything they could to make sure it had that diversity. And so you had to deal with people on the south side of the city and the north side who economically were totally different and had different issues facing them. And so I see that in the 14th Senate District. And this is a really basic final question. Um, Why should people care about that, the Senate race? Because sometimes local state legislative races kind of get lost uh, with, with Senate races or even the state auditor's race. I happen to think, and I'm not just saying this to suck up to you, I think state Senate races are the most, are arguably the most important races in Missouri politics because the people that end up holding these offices have a lot more power than state legislators. Even Democrats can influence the debate. And oftentimes some of the senators move on to other offices, whether it be on a county level, a judicial level, or a statewide level. That's my observation. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this race should be paid attention to? Well, some of the reasons that you stated, uh, the senators do have a lot of power in the sense of persuasion. They can affect legislation more so than in the state legislature. They do build a good bridge between both sides of the aisle. And I think I can bring that in. One of the things that one of my first campaign managers when I ran for mayor was she was a member of my city council. Uh, she ran my campaign, and she said that 
Joe is a consensus builder. And that's what she said at one of our first campaign meetings as we were organizing my first run for mayorship. And that's what I think I can bring to the table, this idea of being a consensus builder, try to show them uh, issues. You know, I was able to do that in the legislature. There was a bill that was going through the legislature. It was on the floor, and all of a sudden it was being debated, which was going to block not only cities in St. Louis County, but throughout the state from banding together class action lawsuits against big entities that could hurt them. And I convinced rural legislators that, hey, it's hurting your little community out there. And they voted overwhelmingly not to allow that to happen. Well, we'll be following this race closely. And I just want to let our listeners know we will have other candidates for this contest on eventually. As soon as they formally announce. As soon as they formally announce, um, just for fairness. But given that you're still in the legislature, we wanted to give you a a chance to talk about issues as well as politics. Well, thank you. So for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at... Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And how would people follow you on Twitter or otherwise? Well, we have uh, two Facebooks. Uh, One is Joe Adams. The other is Joe Adams for Missouri. That's my political Facebook uh, account. And I do have a Twitter account, and it's Bear underscore Adams, bear like in... Like a, like the animal. Like the animal. Is there any backstory to that, or do you just like being called bear? Uh, it, it was because of a campaign worker uh, 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 gave me a nickname oh, okay. during the campaign. So. Well, it's better, better bear than like lemur Adams or something like that. <laughs> On that note, uh, we all hope you have a great week, and until next time, so long. Step to the rhythm made out of brown paper. Sounds that we bring are of a different nature. Rhythms get greater and the rhythms they get greater. Yes, another of us are full for the chaser. New configuration, new rip and new structure. Belts on the frame that'll hold that won't puncture. Tight, we wrap it up, it's wrapped.